ideal day, how would that day be spent? And you know, there was a couple of hours of writing, a couple of hours of reading, and then it was kind of. Then I asked myself, well, how do you make a career out of that? All roads lead to to where I am right now. That's my guest this week, Jason Dibbs, on what I don't talk about at barbecues. doing when I'm doing the dishes. It's about the dishes, but it's also not about the dishes. The dishes benefit though. Me, not always so much. Same goes for those around me. There are times when keeping busy, being task focused, and immersing myself in the myth of productivity is all I can do from facing whatever it is I can't. Edit whatever it is I haven't the courage to face. I might be upset about something. Chances are I'm caught up in a loop of negative self-talk. Edit I am for sure caught in a web of negative self-talk. Not every time I'm doing the dishes though. Sometimes they just need to be done and not everything fits in the dishwasher. Let's take this opportunity to expand the range of what I'm talking about here. General household domestic activities, putting on washing, hanging clothes on the line, vacuuming, cleaning surface tops, putting stuff away, doing the weekly grocery shopping, filling and unpacking the trolley meticulously getting home and putting all my purchases in their proper place meticulously. All the while, there's some broken record in my head going over and over and over how hard I have it, how much I have to do, how little appreciation there is for all I do. It goes on like this and it gets hard to stop. So no, I don't want to talk. I don't want to talk because I'm afraid of what I might say. I'll snap for sure. I'll whinge. I'll be like all poor little old me and I hate being like that. I know my thoughts aren't rational, aren't right but I can't get my thinking all lined out inside, so whatever I say it will come out all muddled and I'll be misunderstood. Please, just leave me alone, but don't leave me alone. I want to be on my own, but I need to know you want me around. Confused? Join the club. Somehow this stuff bottlenecks around Friday evenings, if I've let it get out of control. I've written off whole weekends by my inability to get outside of my own head. Not so much the last year or two, though I'm prone to the odd afternoon or maybe even day of intense self-loathing, mixed with an overwhelming sense of importance, all tied together with feeling completely ignored and unseen as I move about my day-to-day life. So I do the dishes. I pour my energy and my focus into being productive. Getting stuff done. Showing others no matter how badly I feel, I can still do, still function, still be a man and keep my domain together. Sometimes I just do the dishes because they need to be done. Good luck figuring out which reason is which if you ever catch me elbow deep in suds at a sink. Hi everyone, Ken here. Thanks for coming back to my podcast this week, What I Don't Talk About at Barbecues. It's the time where we get to sit down and talk to each other about the stories that are important to our lives, yet there just doesn't seem to be the time in the day where we can actually just fit them into conversation. They don't seem to naturally come up as we're dealing with our day-to-day existences. So that's why I'm here, just to sit down with someone and find out what stories have been important to making them who they are today. Today I sit down with Jason Dibbs, Jason is a writer, a maker, and a teacher. I've known him as someone who has dedicated his life to searching, exploring, and learning. I often think of Jason as someone who, in his quiet moments, is listening for that original frequency that rang out in the moments just before the Big Bang, because there might be something there that tells us something about ourselves. Whatever he does, he does it with a serious and an all-consuming intent. 
He lives very intensely and I was grateful for the opportunity to sit down and talk to him about the stories from his life that have shaped his path. We go all over the map during this chat and I was pedaling fast to keep up. Jason speaks with a very considerate and deliberate cadence, yet beneath the calm surface is a mind that's going at warp speed. Enjoy the chat, guys. I like Fridays. I think I think actually it's got to be around five o'clock, right? Yes. Yeah, Give yeah. or take. Yeah. This is my favorite moment of every week. Really? Favorite moment. I love this time. Work has just finished. The weekend hasn't kicked in. Yeah. I love Friday afternoons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's, I don't know, it's kind of like, um, it's like that bit in Star Wars before Luke goes off with Obi-Wan. He's, he's, in, he's in the cantina scene. He's meeting Han Solo and Chewbacca. The adventure is about to happen. He knows it's about to happen, but he has no idea what's coming next. <laughs> and it's, you, you know, once you've seen the film once, you know what's coming next. He doesn't. Yeah, if, I, if, if only my, my weekends were as exciting as oh. that. I don't know, sometimes it just feels like un, undifferentiated time and space. Like. Yeah. I find the transition from weekday to weekend really difficult because weekdays, Monday to Friday, it's, it's kind of like routine. Yeah. Set times, you know, you get your train, you're at, you're at work, you're doing your things, you've got your meetings, you get home, you cook your dinner, you chill out, you watch an hour of telly, you read a book, whatever you do. Then the weekends come. And it's 48 hours of absolute, it's like the blob. It's just, there's no form, there's no shape. Yeah, I think my problem is I try and structure it too much. Ah. Maybe. So how do you like? I have major, it's just generally major issues relaxing, like full stop all the time. I'm not alone though, because there's definitely colleagues here who when I come in on the weekend to work, I see them here as well. So I'm not alone in in this kind of thing. But I think it's because of how we view our work. I really think that's what it comes down to in terms of, one, it's difficult. Maybe we all find it difficult to relax, but we're really interested in, in what we're doing and find, we find it really difficult to, to switch off. Well, we don't want to switch off from that. I mean, there are things you want to switch off from, you know, the, the kind of ad, the routine admin that one has to do on a weekly basis, answering emails and whatnot, uh, but, I think the work itself is just something which becomes quite all-consuming and not necessarily in a bad way. I've got tons of questions just based on all you've said, but before that, I suppose I should just begin and we should, I should in, we should get an introduction done before we go too much further. So it's Friday afternoon, we're in the Wilkinson building at Sydney University. We're in the School of Architecture, Design and Planning, and I'm here with Jason. Jason, you know I don't introduce people on this podcast. You're going to do the heavy lifting on this. So introduce yourself to me like you're singing in the shower, where we're most uninhibited, where we've got the best acoustics, where no matter what we sing and how it comes out, it's sounding like an ARIA award winner. I'm sad to say that I really wasn't looking forward to this part. I don't know why. I just find it difficult to do this, but I'm Jason Dibbs. I'm a writer, a maker, and a teacher. And I work at Sydney University School of Architecture. I hope that suffices for an introduction. Well, it's your, that was your five cents. <laughs> What's, you, you said a maker. Maker, yeah. I tried to s- steer away from anything too specific because I think that certainly over the course of the last two decades, I have been involved in lots of different things. <laughs> and that'll definitely come through in this conversation. Um, and technically speaking, I'm not a registered architect, even though I 
am involved in architectural design. Um, but you teach architecture. I teach architectural design and, and theory. You're currently doing your. I'm doing a PhD in arch in architecture and philosophy. But the reason I've used maker because I feel like I'm involved in producing lots of different kinds of content, lots of different outputs. Some, most of those are writing, but sometimes it's video, sometimes it's audio, sometimes it's designs for buildings. And is that what gets you out of bed in the morning to make things? You know what, it's not just the making, it's actually just, the, it's more the thinking. The thinking is what gets me out of bed and keeps me up at night. Um, and I actually did have Thinker, Thinker in my introduction initially, but I decided to omit that because I felt like it was pretentious. But in actual fact, I think most of what I'm interested in is thinking. I guess given the environment we're in, Sydney University, this isn't, this is, there's no better place to be a thinker. Mm. And, and I guess here, here more place. than anyway, it's, it's encouraged. It's, it's what you're here to do, right? Absolutely. I mean, ideally, you know, one would hope that this would be a place where you could have open discussions about things. Uh, but even so, within, within the university itself, there are factions and... But yeah, I think ostensibly it is a place for thinking and a place for, uh, you know, negotiating ideas. Someone who's, someone who's very close to your heart in terms of your architectural studies is Heidegger's. Heidegger, yeah, Martin Heidegger. Yeah. And he said in the past that uh, you do, you know, a lot of your studies has this kind of idea at its core that um, it's the relationship between life and thought. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I think, look, there's absolutely multiple schools of thought on this. And this idea of wanting to treat kind of theory and, and praxis as one, or thought and, and life as one, certainly has its cr critics. Uh, it's not an uncontroversial position at all, but I think personally that, I, one, I just find it fascinating. I find people's biographies fascinating, and I've found that by understanding a biography, I can find various inroads into understanding theoretical positions. Um, on a practical, on a really practical level, sometimes it's as simple as, go, in the case of Martin Heidegger and the work I was doing on, on him a few years ago, it's really as simple as going through his correspondence and being able to identify when he was think, starting to think about certain ideas that later manifested in his writings or in his lectures. Uh, for, I mean, for people who don't know, Martin Heidegger was a, a German philosopher, uh, kind of most, most prevalent in the early part of the 20th century, a highly controversial character, for good reason. He was a, a National Socialist. He was a member of the National Socialist Party. Um, and that certainly tainted history's opinion of him and, and his work. Fairly so, or unfairly oh, yeah, fairly so? so? No, fairly, I think, fairly. Um, because we have this Nietzsche, you have Nietzsche. Who, whose work was appropriated. Yeah, so there's a very, very different situation. Nietzsche, Nietzsche would certainly have not been a member of the National Socialist Party. 
Um, and unfortunately for Nietzsche, I think through the efforts of his sister, Elizabeth Forster Nietzsche, his works came to be affiliated or associated with the National Socialists. Um, contrast that with Heidegger, who himself was a card-carrying member of the National Socialist Party. Uh, 1933, I think it was, he became the first National Socialist rector of his university, Freiburg University. Maybe his allegiance to the National Socialists was as much about career advancement as it was about ideology, but absolutely, if you read through his correspondence, even going back to you know the, the um, 1918 thereabouts, you, you find traces of anti-Semitism throughout his written conversations with people, and it's disheartening. The other aspect of his controversy as well, from and which I find absolutely fascinating from a personal perspective, is that he was a relentless philanderer. He had so many extramarital affairs. Um, and one of those extramarital affairs was with a student, Hannah Arendt, incredibly important Jewish woman philosopher. And I think in some way that particular affair goes to speak to the complexity of the character behind Martin Heidegger when we're talking about Martin Heidegger. And that's why I'm so interested in this relationship between theory and, and practice or thought and life. Um, I think the, the kind of methodology, if you want to call it that, of methodological approach is uh, philosophical biography. Because what I'm really interested in, again, in your, in your introduction, you introduce yourself as a maker. Mm -hmm. And for someone who, you know, you, you're in the world of architecture and design, you're, and an architecture uh, or an architect will generally be seen as someone who is producing something that gets made, or they're, yeah. at the, they're at the origin point or the genesis point of something that eventually comes to life. Yeah. That's not necessarily where you're at. You would have all of the theory behind the architecture, but you're not actively making. No. How do you, how do you see your relationship in terms of architectural study and the, the production of buildings, homes, uh, environments? Yeah, it's a great question and it's something that I think about all the time and it's also something that I try and actively understand through research as well. And I think that um, in terms of making, a lot of architects or architectural designers working in the academic space, actually I would just extend that. I would say a lot of architects and architectural designers, full stop, do a lot of paper architecture. So what I'm talking about with paper architecture are designs that are never formally materialised or never built. Um, in fact, there have been some incredibly influential architectural theorists like Levius Woods, for example, who may have never had anything built at all. Zaha Hadid, who passed away not too long ago, one of you know, the world's most famous architects, didn't really start building until I think she was at least in her 40s or maybe even later. The reason that I bring that up is that architecture itself is such a broad discipline. And I think that for architectural designers working in an academic environment just provides them with an opportunity to explore a lot of ideas that might not otherwise be built and 
by doing so really allows them to explore the kinds of boundaries about what we think architecture is or what architecture should be. Um, my own building experience has been pretty limited. I've done the design and build work for apartment um, renovations and, and things like that. I've also been working on a design for an off-grid uh, house in the Upper Blue Mountains for the last couple of years. And I do see this dialogue between my theoretical work and built work, as, as you might put it. Do you find any limitations when you take theory in, into the real world? And does that then, if so, does that hinder your ability to express no. a, a vision or an idea? No, I think it's the exact opposite. I think it, far from hindering, I think it actually opens up opportunities. And the one thing about theory that probably needs to be emphasised and isn't emphasised enough is that theory, the best theory provides you with a way of understanding as opposed to necessarily guideposts. It's more about kind of understanding the situation and understanding the reasons behind what's going on. Um, and criticism, I guess it provides a framework for criticism and it's through those kinds of activities. So it really is, a, it's about a dialogue between theory and practice and through that dialogue, new forms emerge. It's interesting and I have to I have to be mindful because I can get into uh, I can get into essentialism too quickly where I want to reduce everything down to manageable ideas. Is that, is um, that McEwen's essentialism? Oh, <laughs> we're not going to get too theoretical here. I am going to try and keep this as grounded in in in, in today McEwen. as possible. But it reminds me when you're talking about these architects who've had such a great influence who may not have produced much actual work in the world yeah. in terms of physical output. I immediately, you're talking about them and I immediately think of um, Velvet Underground. Yep. You know, I'm thinking of all these artists who were seminal to a scene, mm. yet you're not going to hear them on the radio. You have to dig pretty deeply, you know, in a record store to find an old LP of theirs. Yeah, yeah. But yet, it's their work that informs and influences the forms that we hear and see today. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, even going back historically through, you know, the relatively recent history of music, there have been a lot of artists who've had a profound impact, like a lot of recording artists who've had a profound impact on the state of music. And for various reasons, their lives have been cut short. And so their actual output is so limited. I mean, Jeff Buckley would be the, the classic example. And I don't know exactly know what it is from a theoretical perspective, in terms of what he was doing, whether, whether it was so groundbreaking, but there was something about Jeff Buckley beyond his amazing vocal abilities or whatever. Um, something about that, that album. Um, that singular one. Yeah, that just changed, changed the scene entirely. So sometimes maybe it's, I mean, often, often it could just be a case of needing that one home run that then kind of shapes everything else. But that album in itself doesn't really speak to, you know, the years that he spent practicing and honing his skills. I mean, it does, it does speak to it, but it doesn't reveal it in, in a kind of way. So I'm really interested in, you talked about changing the scene and, a change, and, and moments and things that change and define and shape what's to come. Mm. For me, that's what this podcast is all about. I'm really interested in those moments where 
you know, it's, it's been a moment or an episode or a realization from your life that's changed you as a person, that's changed how you see the world, or has literally set you on a new direction that, you know, there's no going back from. So for me, they're the stories that we're not telling at barbecues, the things that, that have happened but we don't often talk about. I know for me, when I'm at a barbecue, I may want to talk about some of these things, but th there's just no natural place in conversation to do it. Mm. So that's why I do this. So is there, any, is there a time from your life, is there a story where you've, you know, th there's been a, a clear before and after in terms of who you were and who you were becoming? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's probably too many of these stories and there's just too many things that I wouldn't want to talk about at barbecues full <laughs> stop, which is maybe revealing of me as a person, I don't know. <laughs> but on reflection, I think that the journey from, from western suburbs where I grew up to where I am now has been incredibly long and incredibly difficult in, in many ways. And so I think that I can kind of see a lot of the issues that I've had to deal with over the past decades as emanating from that kind of place. You know, western suburbs of Sydney in the 1980s. And then conversely, I kind kind of see my response to those issues as being the reason as to why I've been able to do some of the things that I've been able to do in recent years. So is your, is your life and how you live your life today a direct response of growing up in the suburbs I think of Western Sydney? I think what it, what it comes down to on one level is a reaction and a response, an initial reaction and a response to the environment that I found myself in, or maybe more specifically, my feelings about that environment that I found myself in. And then moving forward, I think it was about understanding important life lessons that were gained through that experience. So one, in, one, in, one, in one case, it's a situation of kind of rebelling against and reacting to. And then in the other, it's, it's, it's been a case, I would say in later years certainly, of reflecting on and realizing that this is how I can expand my, my own horizon. So growing up in the suburbs of the 80s and 90s, <laughs> did you have a clear idea or, or did you have an alternate idea as to how you wanted to be living or where you wanted to be living you know, in response to the kind of the faceless, nameless suburbs that we grew up in. Yeah, so I think that in the early days, certainly it was very difficult to see beyond the suburbs. I mean, I know that I don't want to be disrespectful to anyone at all, and we still have, or I still have, a, a lot of good friends and, and family who live, live out and around the western suburbs of Sydney. But for me personally, I just felt it was a really desolate and kind of isolating place to grow up. And I think that it was only through chance in a lot of respects that I was able to kind of get an idea that there was a life going on outside of the suburbs and that I wanted a piece of it. What sparked, like when you talk a chance, what, what was that? 
or, or what began that other awakening or realization that there was a life beyond Roper Road and the Great Western Highway and the M4 freeway? So I will answer that question, but, okay. but before I do, I just we'll put want, a pin in that one. I just want to say that, and I mean, but this leads this leads into answering your question, I think, and 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 this, the fact that there was a real scarcity of role models, of legitimate role models. I mean, if you were into basketball or rugby of some description, I think you were okay. You could kind of aspire to one of those situations and gain some respect. But I was always a bit of an outsider. And that may not, I think I'm a good chameleon and so it's probably not obvious to people. Um, but I generally feel like an outsider and I especially felt like an outsider there. And I think that's where those feelings of not fitting in and not belonging really uh, were concretized in me. And there's certainly things that I still, still deal with today, absolutely. So it began with, a, it began with that kind of feeling of fish out of water or, or absolutely. In, you know, in the wrong place. Wrong place. I mean, so it starts there and then begins the search. Well, begins the search. And I think that, so the thing was, there was a lack of legitimate role models, drug dealers and criminals, like seriously, these were the people I was hanging around, it was crazy. Um, but again, I was always on the periphery. Uh, but at the same time, I think because I didn't really feel like I was fitting in anywhere else, I just kind of was fascinated by the excitement of these guys and their bravado and these crimes they were involved in, but I was a hanger on, you know. Uh, that, I, I imagine the inception of that idea, I don't fit in. I know for myself, it doesn't matter what room I'm in, I still feel I don't fit in. Yeah. And it could be a room of my own making, but I, I still feel like I'm on the fringes. I'm not sure that ever leaves you, but where are you at? Like, do you think it can be overcome or do you still feel that kind of searching uh, yeah. feeling within you? I absolutely feel that. I don't feel a searching within. I feel like a struggle to come to terms. I feel like coming to terms is in proximity now. I feel like I'm almost there, but not quite there. Um, so you'd say belonging. You'd... It comes, this underlying idea I think comes down to a sense of belonging. And I think that anybody who has maybe started out in a kind of, in an environment of maybe, of, you know, of relative poverty, or uh, certainly a kind of socio-demographic which is disadvantaged, anyone who's traveled from that kind of place and then worked their way through, say, even working their way through academia or working their way through any industry, I think would certainly be conscious of this idea of belonging and perhaps at sometimes feel that they don't necessarily belong. So it's always, you're always trying to establish strategies, I think, to realize that you do belong. Because it's not that you don't belong, it's just that you feel like you don't belong. They're two very different things. I mean, obviously, there are people out there who want to make you feel like you don't belong for whatever you know, self-interest that they, they may have. But generally speaking, I mean, I work with some great people, absolutely. And I wouldn't say that any of them would 
ostensibly want to make me feel like I, I don't belong. And in actual fact, in, in you know, quiet conversations with some of them, I've heard the same things from, from them as well about this feeling of not exactly belonging. And I think it's because we're chasing something else. We're, tr we're engaged in self-improvement. We're engaged in career progression and advancement. And when you're moving like that, sometimes you don't feel like you belong. There's an idea I want to get to, but I want to begin with as, as succinctly as you can or as clearly as you can, what is architecture? <laughs> I know, I know that's, that's a, it's a loaded question to ask. It's an impossible question to okay. ask. Impossible question for so many reasons. But, well, okay, and I'm well, not saying that okay, to well, be... Would it be simpler to ask... If, and again, this is just me being very top line. Architecture is the design of space that we, that humans inhabit. See, humans would be problematic in that. For the most part, I think, yes, we do design spaces or places, probably places for humans. But I don't think that's all architecture is. Okay. So, if, I mean, if I was to try to cobble together some kind of response, and again, it's not going to do any justice to the, to the question, to the depth of the question and the complexity of the question, but... I think you're giving the question a lot of credit there. It's certainly a bit... No, no, honestly, it's an incredibly... I mean, you know, this is the kind of question that dissertations are, are made from. Um, well, but it's me... certainly about thinking about relations between spaces and places. I would say that that would be broad enough to cover. And I don't want to say, I don't want to include humans in that because I think there's a lot to be said for ideas about non-human architecture. We're not the only you know, creature on this planet that builds. And also there's another argument uh, which was really explored by Bernard Rudofsky in the kind of mid part of the 20th century and that is the idea of architecture without architects the idea of non-pedigreed architecture, the history of building and dwelling that goes back for as long as humans have existed. I'm interested in that word dwelling. So maybe, maybe I, I could have reduced the question down to what is a dwelling? <laughs> is that, I, 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 again, I know I'm using these terms which to you have a great yeah. etymology, but... Dwelling's a massively loaded term in, in architectural history and theory. Especially and most importantly, probably because of Martin Heidegger's essay, uh, 1951 Building Dwelling Thinking. Um, and in that, he more or less posits that something that characterizes mankind is this uh, concomitance of building, dwelling, thinking. Hence the title of the essay doesn't have any punctuation. Building, dwelling, thinking are presented as three kind of continuous I guess terms. what I, I guess what I'm really interested in is, you know, you've used the word the relationship between place and space. Yeah. But for me, relations, and maybe this is just my own humanity, you know, ego speaking, but relationships don't happen without people, at least in the human world. See, uh, I, I couldn't agree I, I, with that. I, I would have to say things. Relationships don't happen without things. I think things can be in relation. Uh, they don't. Ha I mean, uh, the, the problem with putting humans in there is it kind of 
One, it straightaway privileges our, our perspective, yep. which is something I'm careful to avoid. And certainly all of the object-oriented philosophies that I'm interested in now go to great lengths to distance, distance themselves from this kind of anthropocentric uh, notion or anthropocentric framework. And I think it's important to do that, I really do. Heidegger, that wasn't his sitch. Heidegger was very anthrop anthropocentric. His whole idea about, the, about Dasein being there was really about mankind's special sense of, of being. Uh, and that's something I'm, I'm not necessarily a fan of. Which is, I, I guess, you know, for me, I'm probably stuck in that place a little bit where I don't see any relationship happen without a human intervention because what is a space or a place mm -hmm. if there's not a human there to inhabit it and it kind of acknowledge it? Yeah. Because I guess where, I, where I'm trying to come to in a really roundabout way is the work you do yeah. is looking at the relationship between people, places, things, spaces and you know you've come from this place where you didn't necessarily feel a belonging yeah but your work is all about the intersection of when things come together yeah so from from not feeling a sense of belonging to you know dedicating the life and, and your kind of life and your study right now to looking at those intersectional moments mm. that to me is very interesting yeah i, th I mean the thing that's obviously present in, in both instances whether it's anthropocentric or not our relationships and so if you were to I think that's a really nice way of, of joining these two ideas together because absolutely belonging is about relationships it's about the nature of relationships and architecture is about the, na the nature of relationships I mean maybe that's would be a good definition for, for what architecture is it's the study of the the nature of relationships mm -hmm. and it just so happens that architecture is mostly preoccupied with formal relationships and material and physical relationships um, so a, a lot of a lot of your work to date is centered around what others have done what others are doing yes um, you know what's come before and how it informs what we do next that's right how do you see your place in that from from where you sit here you're you're you know as an educator you know, you're obviously doing your own work with your PhD, but you have a responsibility, I imagine, as an educator to inform, influence, direct, guide the next kind of generation of architectural and design thinkers. How do you see your place in terms of what, you know, understanding what's come before to inform what we are going to do next? Yeah, I think the, the role of the historian in architecture and theory and, I mean, history of philosophy, history of ideas, intellectual, I, uh, intellectual history as well, I think it's incredibly important. Um, understanding, and in terms, I mean, essentially, you know, this is one of the, the bases for how we teach. We reflect on what, what's gone before and we convey that information, we theorize, we critique, we analyze, and then we formulate maybe new understandings of things. And I think that for me, teaching is such an important part of what I do. Um, and it's only through teaching that I realized how much I love teaching. And I know I'm not alone, I have some colleagues here, you know, young guys as well, like in their late 20s who are just mad about teaching. We just can't get enough of it. And I think it is the fact that we find ourselves 
actively engaged in exploring ideas you know, with, with young, eager minds. It's an incredible, incredible thing to do. And you, I mean, you talked earlier, you know, as we were talking about growing up in the Western suburbs and how that kind of shaped and formed, I guess, your initial outlook on the world. You talked about a lack of role models. Yeah. And it's really, it's great to hear that, you know, you're part of a, a, a kind of a community here in, in the school where there's so many people who want to, whether, whether you see yourself as a role model, it seems irrespective, you're taking on that mantle just yeah. by living it and being it every day and you know your presence here and engagement with the, with, with the students, that, that that's kind of, you're creating that model and path for them to, to, to follow too. I mean, as a teacher, you can't help but be a role model. That's part of the gig. I mean, I've seen some pretty ordinary teachers um, over the, the, the many years, almost two decades that I've been involved in, in studying and teaching. And what, do you, what do you think <laughs> makes... Like, obviously, we will all know, all of us in our lives will have had ordinary teachers yeah. at best, some of us, so yeah, I'm lucky yeah. enough to have inspirational teachers. But why do you think someone teaches who clearly in front of a classroom displays no passion or enthusiasm or ability to effectively influence and, and engage others in a, in a learning discipline? Look, I think it's the, it's the same reason why so many disgruntled musicians end up in music stores and so many aspiring authors end up in bookshops. I really think that the explanation is the same and a lot of the times you get people working in an academic environment Actually, not a lot. Sometimes you get people working in an academic environment who would rather be doing other things. I don't know what those things might be. Maybe they're in the middle of writing a book and they, you know, they're banking on this book, but they're just not quite there yet, so they teach. Or maybe they've got a stellar research career, like an outstanding research, and maybe they're incredibly gifted in their, in their research and dedicated to their research, but it just so happens that their job description involves percentage of teaching time. That's a pretty standard model. The other alternative, I think, is people just don't know what they're doing in life. They haven't quite figured it out yet and they find themselves teaching as a kind of in-between. Um, I've seen all three, all three of those, absolutely, and I think uh, they're generally the worst kinds of teachers, unfortunately, for their students. But fortunately, they don't tend to, to last so long well, That's encouraging. As, a, as a result, I think. Architecture, at its best, at its worst, at its most average, is something that we will eventually see on street corners, in suburbs, next to the beach. We'll see, you know, it, it inevitably makes its way to the public eye. You know, and, and a lot of the, your study has looked at the intersections of philosophies, thoughts, ideas, movements, with the manifestation of how spaces have evolved. It seems to me you know, architecture really kind of embodies the, the coming together of forces, ideas, and people. Mm. Um, in terms of, you know, when ideas collide, what's, what's been your understanding of, or, or what, creates, uh, an, uh, what creates what we see? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you did a pretty good job of describing the kind of various factors that go into shaping architecture as it's produced, but maybe 
Is it sadly is it financial, a or is it is it a look back? Is it a reflection of? Oh well, yeah. I mean, it's both. It can be both of those things, absolutely. And I think I don't think it would be controversial to argue that the economic forces, in large part today, and maybe always, have played the largest in, in influence in in how architecture is manifested, how architecture is actually built around the place. I mean, it's kind of like if you. I often um, think of architecture as a parallel industry to the, to the film industry, to the Hollywood film model. You know, there's a lot of money and a lot of people involved in these projects. They have to be profitable in order to make sense. It's the, I was going to say unfortunate, but I don't know if it is. It's just the reality. So is the work you're doing today here at the, at the School of architecture design and planning is it simply to understand or is there something more driving your 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 quest for learning yeah i think it's i think it it's about understanding absolutely but it's through that understanding that we develop the the capacity to you know explore new forms of architecture or new ideas about architecture and it's constantly revising this question you know or revisiting the question of of what architecture should be and it's ever ever changing as it should be. Can you give us an example of in the real world of what architecture says about us? So maybe there's a recent development or even a, a, a famous example of what a particular development or building or space says about us or said about people at the time. I mean historically architecture's always always been able to say so much about the the time periods from which it emerges. Um, I mean, there are obvious examples, you know, just going back through the history of architecture, thinking about pyramids, for example, and the way pyramids reflect on the, the kind of hierarchy of Egyptian culture, going through the Renaissance and the Baroque, and looking at the way that kind of mythology was reappropriated how that reflected on the, in their culture the way that adornment ornamentation was used to such exquisite effect in those forms of architecture i think going through kind of functionalism in the 20th century it says so much about the economic rationalization of architecture and in large part has led us to where we are now i think and if you wanted to look at, at architecture today I mean, you look at radical buildings being built around the world, they're typically being built as landmarks. And there's a kind of culture of architects where people, it's called the Bilbao effect, but it could easily be called the Sydney Opera House effect. You build a, you know, an extraordinary piece of architecture. It's kind of like you build it and they will come. It's a kind of mentality behind it. Now, the Opera House is an exquisite piece of architecture, no doubt about it. Uh, Bilbao Guggenheim's another exquisite piece of architecture, no doubt about it. But in a similar way, the same, a similar kind of economic rationale is behind projects as questionable as apartment complexes now sitting in, you know, just south of Sydney, empty, kind of faceless. Uh, 
suburb expansions in southwest of Sydney. There's a real, it's just quite obvious from looking at those examples close to home, how economic rationalism in large part underpins much of the architecture that's being built today. You recently wrote about a, a, new, a new development in Punchbowl. Yes. Uh, there's the, uh, towards the end of last year, Punchbowl Mosque. Punchbowl Mosque, yeah. It was open. Candelapis and Architects. I guess what really interested me about that development was, I don't know if it was a, maybe, I don't think challenge is the right word, but the fact that the, the designers, the architects, omitted the minaret. Yeah. Which is, you know, when I think, when people will picture the traditional understanding or, or, or call to mind what they believe a mosque to be with that, you know, the arch dome and the minarets on either side, you know, which is obviously where the, the call to prayer happens. So it has its function. And yet, with this particular development, on, on, on first reading, for me, I, I would kind of take a backward kind of bit of a gasp and go, that seems controversial. Mm. What's your understanding of, of omitting something that almost seems, you know, embedded within the form of, of, of something? I think that it's actually part of the role of architecture to constantly ask these kinds of questions that lead to these kinds of designs. So Candelapis was able to pose the question, you know, what is it that is essential about the minaret? And I believe he identified that it wasn't the actual formal structure of the minaret itself, but it was the call to prayer that was significant. And so in a way, he kind of deconstructed the minaret, yet maintained and provided amenity for the, the call to prayer. And with the dome itself as well, I think in that particular example, Angelo Candelapis's approach is so masterful in terms of internalizing the dome and turning it into these kind of 99, I think there's actually 101, 102, these small domes cast from concrete on the interior. I mean, it, it makes for an incredibly breathtaking space. And I think that that's what the best architecture does is it actually looks at what's been done before and then poses the question of where do we go from here? Why was it done this way? And then understanding where you can proceed or change the design. Because I guess for me, religion seems one space in our society that I would imagine, or you know, I, I put the thoughts on it, that it's resistant to change. Mm. And especially when we're creating the visible forms, our la the landmarks of where we go to worship, almost, it's, it's almost as if the space we worship in, like I, I, I was brought up Catholic and going to churches in Ireland, they were, they're all a few hundred years old, so they all follow a classic form mm. of steeples, uh, tainted glass, you know. So coming to Australia, it's, churches were newer. They were 10, 15 years old, so there, there were smaller buildings. To me, the worship felt different because the building felt different. And therefore, maybe in a small way, made me question that, that belief because the edifice looked different. And uh, I just felt that was a really bold decision to not include what is such a strong, you know, image uh, to, you know, that brings to mind. I think credit has to go to the client, real, I mean, as, as well as Candelapis Architects, I think credit has to go to the client for being courageous enough to realize that 
religion is a dynamic enterprise and that in order for a religion like any organisation to remain relevant and legitimate, it has to change and evolve. It's just part and parcel of, of human society and existence. We began this conversation around the word maker and yep. you kind of said you were reluctant to be more specific yep. because you've changed a lot. You've followed a few different paths. <laughs> Um, so I'm, can I, to bring it back to that, how has that kind of approach guided you in your life? You know, because, you know, I, again, what you do here within the School of Architecture, Design and Planning, it's quite intensive. I imagine once the, once the term or semester starts, you're all in and it's all consuming. Yeah. Um, how's that kind of willingness to change and grow influenced your own life? Yeah. So, it's. I, I think it's. I mean, it's an interesting question, and it's it kind of a few questions roll in, in, into one, which makes it difficult to answer. But I think having tried so many different things in my twenties, which was kind of my my time of experimentation with like lots what? of different things. What did you try? As a few examples. As a few examples. So I spent a lot Nothing of that's going to get you arrested because I'm not <laughs> sure we're past statute of limitations for your 20s yet. I was pretty careful to commit all my crimes before the age of 18, <laughs> I think. And, I, and then I, I had enough of a moral com compass to make sure that there wasn't anything that was completely unforgivable. But I think that, again, going back to our earlier part of the conversation, there was a real, for me personally, there's a real lack of focus coming out from where I grew up. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I was trying all kinds of things. Even in high school, I thought I wanted to be a podiatrist at one stage, a lawyer at one stage. I wanted to get into advertising. I mean, this is all, you know, 15, 16, 17 years of age. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And then emerging from that kind of scene, still having no idea, started doing all kinds of weird jobs, lifeguarding, selling Swiss watches, playing in rock and roll bands. Most of my 20s was, was spent playing rock and roll, as, as you know, which is a hell of a lot of fun. Um, I, sh I should just say at this point, without diverting the conversation, that the music you hear at the beginning of the podcast and the end of the podcast from the band Eight and a Half, piece by piece, Jason was actually a member of that band. It's true. And uh, I just wanted on the record that you have given me permission at some point to use that song. Absolutely. I don't know if awesome. you got permission from the others, but I give you, I give you my, my, well, what, my what, One of them is my brother, so I'll, I'll take familial overwrite. But it was about, the 20s for me was all about that experimentation and it was about trying out lots of different things. And I did start studying in that time. I mean, I started a business degree, didn't finish it, started a law degree, didn't finish that. Started thinking, oh my God, I'm never going to finish anything in my life. I'm doomed to you know, failure. And then finally I found philosophy and was able to you know, commit uh, four years of study, I think it was, to do a philosophy degree. Um, but even then, I emerged from that not having any idea. I started making films. You know, I was trying all these different things out, just and seeing what what stuck. But I and I think that the problem was is that I was enamoured by so many things, and the way I was living my life was really dictated by kind of romantic idealism. I loved the idea of these things. I didn't really know what I liked on a day-to-day -day basis. I think it was kind of 
understanding and asking myself the question of what I, how do I want to spend my day, really? What do I enjoy doing, you know, day in, day out? Because that's what, and I think, I mean, that's what a career is about, you know, it's about habit, going in there and doing the work. Um, and that was missing from most of my 20s. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know what I liked doing. Um, and I didn't have any patience, you know? And I think that that emerging from that and asking myself those questions, realizing that I lacked patience, but that, you know, there were things I liked doing. I liked writing, I liked researching. I've been researching since I was a kid. I used to research the most ridiculous things when I was in primary school. I mean, I used to know everything about Guns N' Roses. <laughs> everything, literally, I was eight years old. You could have asked me anything about Guns N' Roses and I would have been able to tell you. Can you recall a random fact that we might not be aware of, just to put you on the spot? Yeah, I think David Geffen once, I, I remember there was this negotiation going on and Axl Rose basically said, yeah, well, you know, we'll sign to Geffen Records, but you have to give us $200,000 cash and someone has to walk like naked down the road to deliver it to us. I remember that kind of story. I don't know if it's true, it's probably not true, but something like that. But, and as an eight-year-old, I mean, this is the kind of thing I was in, into, you know, really getting into the nuts and bolts. I had an obsessive personality then, and I've had an obsessive personality all my life, just that in my 20s, I was obsessed with various things, and I'd kind of go through them relatively quickly. Played rock and roll all throughout, though. Um, I mean, it's one thing to recognise these patterns. And, uh, you know, there's... I, I, I guess for myself, I find a bit of a power sometimes in, in, in firstly seeing the pattern. I guess then the real life skill is doing something about it. Yeah. Because if it's a pattern that's resurfacing, why is it resurfacing? What's causing it? Yeah. Is it helping me live a good day? If it's not, what can I do to... Yeah, totally. It becomes Groundhog Day mm. ultimately when you're not picking up on the patterns or reflecting in the right kind of way. And it's a very difficult thing to do. I think it takes maturity. Again, I think a lot of it as well, I think a lot of it comes back down to growing up the way where I grew up, the way I grew up, I went to terrible schools, all this kind of thing. And just maybe, I, I feel, I don't know, but I feel like maybe there were skills that could have been shown to me earlier on, but they weren't. And I had to figure them out for myself. And it took me almost until I was 30 to kind of figure out that I've been doing these same kinds of things day in, day out, kind of beating my head against a wall a little bit, not, not very happy at all, how can I change my life? And it was just those simple questions, you know, what do I want to do, like on a daily basis? I mean, almost like, I would literally just like work, map out my ideal day, how would that day be spent? And you know, there was a couple of hours of writing, a couple of hours of reading, and then, it was kind of, then I asked myself, well, how do you make a career out of that? All roads lead to, to where I am right now. As someone who spent the last decade almost in a world of philosophical thought and design, can I ask you to just cast your eye on our education system? Sure. Because you talk about the frustrations you felt growing up and not yeah. finding a way and, and I think a lot of people grow up whether whether you're good at school or not whether you're intelligent or not I think we all find challenges throughout the schooling system and our time in school of not really finding our place or not really knowing how you know transactional what we do we do this to get that mm. with with your philosophical and design hats on how could we reimagine 
how we educate and the time and space we give people to become who they're meant to be in a, I don't know, I want to say organic way. Yeah. Because the world we live in certainly doesn't want us to grow up organically. They want to, you know, we are given hard deadlines at the ages of 12, at the ages of 18, at the ages of 21, that we have to hit certain marks. Now, maybe that's just the way it has to be. I'm curious. I don't think it has to be any particular way. I think in large part it's just the way it's evolved. I think that there are already, and there have been for quite some time, a lot of great minds really vigorously engaged in rethinking education. and I think that the kind of Waldorf, Rudolf Steiner, Montessori models are evidence of those explorations. And I think in a lot of situations, they can be exceptional. Um, I think that imp- it's really important to remember that one size does not fit all when it comes to education. I think people are just so unique in their learning needs and the way that they learn. I have colleagues here who can learn who learn best via listening. I have colleagues who are dyslexic and you know, shun any kind of, of, of written work, but are absolutely brilliant, like mind-blowingly brilliant. Um, personally, I, I, I learn through practice. Uh, I, I'm not the kind of, I don't have a photograph. I, have peop- I work with people who, who have photographic memories. I don't have a photographic memory. I have to work through something. Um, and that's how, how I learn. And I think the education system that we presently have, especially in terms of grade school and, and um, secondary school, just does not cater for this diversity. So I think any kind of um, progress in terms of education needs to at least acknowledge and cater for that kind of diversity. And I think, I mean, if I was to, you know, I think to redo my schooling, I absolutely would, would have gone to different schools in high school and I think that if a Steiner school had existed near where I was that would have been a great option for me absolutely project-based learning I think there's a hell of a lot to be said for that we learn you know learning through the things that you're actually enthusiastic about I mean that's another one of the kinds of uh, realizations that I had is if I'm not interested in something it's really difficult for me to learn about it you're a father I'm father. Yeah. You're. I try to be a father. Your son is going to be. He's approaching school yeah. eminently. Yeah, yeah. He's not too far off. A year off now. How do you approach? How with your with your partner? How have you both, or how are you approaching, his his education? Because he's now going to be staring down the barrel of, oh, at least 12, 13 years, give or take. You know, then extra years if he goes on to university. It's a long time when he's only been on the planet four or five years. Sure. How, what type of conversations are you having around his education and what type of experiences you want him to have? I think working as an educator as well has just created a greater impetus on, on me and for me to really try and create the best learning environment that I possibly can for Ted. And I think in terms of deep learning, not learning by rote, but actually understanding what we learn and then being able to reapply what we learn. It's all about the kind of environment, it's about the culture of learning that's established. And so, I mean, literally three years ago, we began a really heavy vetting process of schools, which sounds pedantic and is pedantic, 
and was largely led by me. I don't think my wife's is as concerned as I am, but I'm deeply concerned ba- what, based what on my own experiences, yeah, obviously, so, right? So what, what are you looking for? Because I guess, again, you are in the educational looking, space. So what are, you, what are you looking for? Looking for a kind of community, a kind of scale. So the scale of the school, I think, has to, can't be too big, can't be too small. Um, there's a kind of, you know, a, a bit of a Goldilocks, just right syndrome going on there. Um, looking for diversity. Uh, in, in terms of the, the student cohort, as well as the teaching staff. Uh, cultural diversity is inc- incredibly important. Um, and so we've been, I've been to so many open days for, for schools. I've seen um, so many kind of Steiner type schools that we went to. Um, but we've recently just moved from the Blue Mountains back to Sydney. And so now we're thinking about, we, we specifically moved to a particular area because it has a really great public school. Okay. So that literally dictated where we moved so to. That, that was important in your relocation decision? It was the most important aspect wow. of it. And to, to, if, if we project 10, 12 years ahead into the future, given your own life experiences in terms of, you know, a lot of trying different things, a lot of exploration, a lot of, you know, searching, how do you think that's going to inform your parenting style with your son when he reaches an age where there might be a societal expectation on him to have made certain decisions, but he's just not there yet. It's really difficult for me, I think, because part of my person, I have uh, quite a controlling personality, and I think that when it comes to parenting, unfortunately, I can come across as being far too disciplinary And I think that one of the things that I'll need to cultivate in myself, it's a shortcoming that I have right now, I'm hard on myself. Uh, Maybe I'm hard on myself because of the mistakes that I've made. Um, And I wouldn't want my son to make make the same mistakes, but I have to be able to let him make those mistakes. So, you know, I have to be able to kind of let him explore, uh, but not in the way that I was allowed to to explore. There are parameters and guidance and I'm, uh, you know, I'm a real advocate of role modeling. I think it's incredibly important to, to kind of role model behave, the kinds of behaviors that you expect from others. Um, so hopefully that's, hopefully I can temper down my dis- disciplinarian streak and uh, great. be a bit more open. It's, well, it's, I think it's great that you've given it so much thought because that's all we can really do at this stage, right? Yeah, we yeah. can only prepare ourselves. Actor and comedian Kevin Pollack says, if you're not creating, you're waiting. Is there anything you're waiting on? No, I couldn't be waiting for anything. I don't think I've ever waited for anything. And I'm the kind of person who doesn't get bored. And the reason I don't get bored is because I'm always doing something, always making something. And one of the other important lessons that I I, I think I've learned in the last decade, certainly, is that in order to be creative, you actually have to be productive. I think it, it runs counter to a lot of arguments I've seen out there which kind of say, you know, or too much emphasis on productivity kills creativity. I think the opposite is actually true. I think you've got to be there. You've got to be sitting at your desk ready to do whatever it is you do each day. You might not have a a fantastic output that particular day, but you've got to show up. It might be frustrating. You might even have a frustrating week, but that's the only way things happen. And so that's just basically how I've lived my life the last decade. 
I show up, I do what I like, you know, I go through this, this routine that I thoroughly enjoy. Some days are good, some days are bad, but it's more about the long-term game and being highly productive. Well, it's a great way to mo- it's a great way to kind of model a path for your son. If we if we if we touch back on role models again, mm. showing up, I think yeah, it's too easy not to show up. It's too easy to to ah that was tough yesterday. I'll chuck a sickie today, or I won't take that opportunity because it might push me. Yeah, yeah. I think and I think I mean I'm not 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 trying to be heroic at all here, but I've been teaching now for seven years and I've never had a sick day, and I think that says a lot about what it's like when you find something that you really enjoy. I honestly, and I'm, I'm, I know I'd be speaking for others in, in this school as well, we'd be here doing what we do even if we weren't getting paid to do it. Because it's freaking fun, man. That's a lovely way to be. <laughs> Jason, I end every podcast by asking my guests a series of quick hit questions, and I'll do my best to keep them quick, but I always get excited by the answers, so it's probably not gonna happen. Do you mind if I put you on the spot? No, go for okay. it. Okay. If you could have a walk-on song every time you entered a room, what would it be? Okay, I've given this great thought, and I actually could not tell you a single walk-on song, but I'm really obsessed with exit songs. Um, So honestly, honestly, I literally have this list that I'm continually revising of uh, of songs that I want played at my funeral. Wow! And I think I think this has everything to do with me being incredibly obsessive and incredibly controlling. All right, and the fact that I, I have very little faith in anybody else being able to choose music for my own funeral. And okay, just, <laughs> hit, hit, so, hit us up, put your list. So the song... A song. It's just, okay. it's, so you did, I, na- I, you did narrow it to one. I, I narrowed it down to one because there's, there's, there's one song that's been on my list for the longest time. And I've, others have come in and gone, um, but this one's been there. And I'm pretty sure that I, I, can't, I can't imagine a time when this song won't be on my, on my funeral. Generalist. And what is that song? So look song? forward to it at some stage. Oh, okay. <laughs> that, that's if I'm, I'm around after you. Uh, maybe. <laughs> so the, the song is, is, is uh, it's called Sleepwalk, and it's by Santo and Johnny. It's from the late 50s, and it's this incredible instrumental, just the most beautiful slide guitar. Um, People probably would have heard it. And I first heard it in the La Bamba movie. Ah. If anybody's seen it, I know it's the, song. It's the song. Throughout. It's the song towards the end. Yeah, the plane crash. Yes. montage. I, I've got it in my head right you, now. You have it, yeah. So wow. I saw La Bamba when I was a kid. Heard the song. Thought it was amazing. A little bit later, I saw this B movie. It was a, uh, it was a version of Stephen King's uh, Sleepwalkers. Pretty average film, but. Sleepwalkers. The There's a whole song. weird mother and son thing going on. Very there. weird mother and yeah. son thing. Don't let which, that. Which reappeared in Mr. Mercedes, which was a show Stephen King co-wrote recently. I had to explain. I had to try and explain to my wife the whole mother and son fascination of Stephen King <laughs> fiction. That's not a good conversation. Don't let don't let sleep Sleepwalkers ruin your idea of Sleepwalk. Though it is the most beautiful song. It's haunting, melancholic. It's everything you'd want from a funeral song. Beautiful. What's one thing you're certain about? So. I genuinely try not to be certain about anything. I think certainty is majorly problematic. I'm suspicious of truth, principles, imperatives, uh, but I try not to be a relativist at the same time. So I do believe in knowledge and I believe in meaning, but I just think that truth and meaning uh, and knowledge are distinct, distinct ideas. What's a deal breaker for you? Deal breaker? Then, uh, so for me, it's a similar question to the last one. And so I'd answer it in a similar way. So everything's negotiable, basically. 
because uh, I don't want to be too wedded to ideals or ideas. But I gave it some thought, and there is one exception, and that would be hard-boiled eggs. Okay, in what way? Hard-boiled eggs are toxic and disgusting, and they should never be, be eaten <laughs> in public. I've been on trains before where people have cracked open the egg, started to go away. Honestly, man, I'm off that train at the next station. No joke. <laughs> so that's not negotiable for me. <laughs> okay. Me and hard-boiled eggs. Hard-boiled hard eggs in public places. Just hard-boiled eggs full stop. I think they should be, should be banned. That would be okay. not, not negotiable. You've never world. done the whole cut the top off, dip, oh, your, dip just, your toasty just soldiers? Just forget it, man. Just fry that egg. <laughs> okay. Man. Have it running All if right. you like. What's one thing you can't currently live without? One thing I can't live without? Ooh, this is, this is a good one because I, I can't live without running. Going out for a run every other day keeps me sane. It really keeps me sane. When I was a kid, I used to run all the time. I used to win prizes and I was probably hyperactive. I'm sure that's what they would diagnose me today. Um, but you know, you give, you give things up like that in your 20s because you're too busy doing rock and roll or backpacking or whatever it is that you And do. you can't run when you're hungover. You can't run when you're hungover. Or when you're going out to be hungover. No, it doesn't make any, any sense at all. Um, but I had this mini crisis, probably a precursor to midlife crisis, which I haven't had yet, but it's probably on the horizon. I read Haruki Murakami, uh, you know, the, the tiny little book, what, what I talk about when I talk about running. I was going through, had this, you know, going through a breakup crisis type things, like, what am I gonna do? Go out, buy a pair of cheap sneakers, take to the streets. It was snowing where I was living at the time. It was a completely crazy thing to do, but I've been running ever since. Um, and I think the thing that people don't realize about running is it's incredibly aesthetic. You really um, get immersed in the environments in which you find yourself. And I like running along trails in the mountains or fire trails. And so it's just an awesome, awesome way to get to see kind of hard to, hard to see places. The other thing about running that is equally important is that it teaches you patience. Running distance, it's not an easy thing to do, building up distance over time. And so for me, I've seen this real synergy between my running, which I do for my sanity, uh, and my writing, which I also do for my sanity, but it's about both of, both of these things necessitate patience. Beautiful. What are you going to entitle your autobiography? <laughs> so I really don't think I'll ever do anything important enough to, to warrant an autobiography, um, but I am trying, seriously. Uh, but recently, here at, here at work, some colleagues and I have been playing ping pong during our, our lunch break. It's tons of fun and it's a really nice counterpoint to, to writing. Um, and I'm really terrible at ping pong. Like, I absolutely <laughs> suck at ping pong. So I think the, the, the name that I've given myself in ping pong is the king of unforced errors. And I reckon wow. that could be a pretty cool title for an autobiography, maybe for me or for someone else. But I've got a second, second autobiography suggestion, okay. uh, which might be more applicable to me. And a friend of mine actually just introduced me to this term this morning. And it's German, it's Gastdruck. Gastdruck. I think it's a made up expression, but it basically means as a lot of these great German compound words do, it, it, it means the anxiety that one feels as a house guest. That's a good one. I just think it's so good. As a way of describing someone who doesn't quite feel like they fit in. Mm. 
I think we've it, come back to I think belonging and outsiders. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it's that anxiety. Gastric. It's one word. It's awesome. Lovely. I'm going to throw a bonus question at you just because, you know, this, this has already been the longest quick hits ever. <laughs> I definitely, quick hits is not a core skill of mine. So let's just extend it by one more question. Do you have a guiding principle? Guiding principle. That, that kind of informs how you go about in the world. I, I sure do. And it's, it's one of those things. I think working as an academic, I'm obsessed with quotations. I literally have libraries of quotations. And the irony of it is I can never remember a single quotation ever. It's ridiculous. But there's a quote from a Norwegian philosopher, he was a mountaineer as well, Arnie Ness. And he's someone who doesn't get a lot of write-up outside of Norway, but was absolutely fundamental in kind of forming, you know, 20th century environmental and ecological movements, like probably the father, if you want to identify one father. Um, and the quote from Arnie Ness is the smaller we come to feel ourselves compared to the mountain, the nearer we come to participating in its greatness. I just wanted to leave a moment for that. That was... It's beautiful, right? Yeah. It's just epic. And I think that for me, even though I can never remember it word for word and I had to write it down for this, it underpins everything for me, really. My whole outlook, my morality. And for someone who's not... I would never call myself a spiritual person. That's certainly as close to spiritual as, as I get. It comes back to that relationship to space, place, absolutely. And being. I think we've we've covered quite a bit. Jason, where can people go to learn more about the type of work you're doing and, and kind of the, the writings that you do? So I've set up a kind of compendium of, for all my writing and just for exchanging ideas about design and theory and it's a, a little website called designhistorytheory.com the other good place would be on the ArcSpace website which is the Danish Centre for Architecture's architecture blog online I do tons of writing for them um, and I've actually set up an email address as well to kind of you know foster a bit of dialogue it's designchinwag at gmail.com awesome I'll make sure there's links to all of that in the show notes so that people if they want to reach out or or read some of your work. I do recommend, especially uh, you, your, your piece from January around the Punchbowl Mosque, Thanks, just, just to get an idea around the visuals, because it is, especially the interior space is oh, quite stunning. Oh, it's an amazing building. Yeah, and, and, and it's right here, it's right in our city. Absolutely. Uh, and we could go in, you know, it, it's right there. It's, it's something that should be appreciated on, on, any, on many levels. You think we got it? Man, it was awesome. Yeah, thanks for being here, Jason. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your Friday to, to come onto my podcast and do this. I've really looked, I've, I was looking forward to it. I, I think we've covered a hell of a lot. I'm glad we did it. Thanks so much for having me, man. It's, it's just amazing. And also congratulations on your podcast. Thank it's, you. It's tops. Awesome. Take care. And that's how Jason and I did that. You can stay up to date with all that Jason is doing at ArcSpace, Design Theory History, or at his email, designchinwag at gmail.com. All the links are in the show notes. Go check them out. Thanks to Eight and a Half and Jason for allowing me to use piece by piece as the intro and outro to the pod. Thanks to Tara Ward for art and design. I'll be back next week with another great chat. Take care. Bye-bye. No